Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Wednesday, October 18th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 59. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create informative content about a variety of topics, including organic agriculture, composting, seed saving, herbalism, permaculture strategies, and much more. Polycultured is looking forward to sharing our farm offerings with you. So if you're interested in our work, you can visit our site at www.polycultured.com. Earthen plasters are natural building materials that have been used for centuries to finish interior and exterior surfaces of structures. They're made from a mixture of clay, sand, fibers, and sometimes other natural additives. These plasters are known for their sustainable and eco-friendly nature, as well as their ability to regulate humidity and provide a unique, earthy aesthetic. The use of natural building materials dates back to ancient times when humans first began constructing shelters and dwellings. Throughout history, people have relied on locally available resources to build homes that provided protection from the elements and a sense of security. Let's begin with a short history of plaster. People have been using plaster as long as they've been living inside of dwellings, and it had a profound impact on our ancestors' ability to survive. Being able to construct dwellings in advantageous places, such as close to bodies of water and arable land, are a part of how villages and eventually cities came into being. The first plasters were earthen plasters, primarily made from local clay, sand, and straw. These plasters required no heat to cure and could be made into bricks to form buildings, and these types of earthen plasters are still reliable and commonly used today. It's likely that calcium plasters, like lime or gypsum, were found through pottery making, where gypsum or lime rocks were unintentionally chosen to create basic kilns for firing pottery. But when the kiln's high heat evaporated the water for gypsum or the carbon dioxide for lime from these rocks, they actually crumbled into powder. And so when water was then thrown on the smoldering remains to extinguish the fire, the powder transformed into a quickly solidifying paste. In the ancient world, one of the earliest archaeological examples of plaster is found in Çatalhöyük in Turkey. And this is going back to 7500 BC. The town was densely populated and its dwellings were made from mud brick walls and floors. And these surfaces were coated with a locally available material called clay marl, which is a mixture of clay and marl, which is a sedimentary rock made from clay and calcium carbonate. And we don't know too much about their civilization, but there are a lot of lime frescoes that survived and show scenes such as hunting and decorative patterns. Egypt may hold the best preserved examples of plaster work in the pre-classical period and date from the 3rd millennium BC. The pyramids at Giza, for example, contain gypsum and lime mortar, and originally the exteriors were coated in a smooth lime stucco. Egyptians were clearly masters of plaster, and the quality of their earthen plasters are 
perhaps even better quality than the commercially available plasters you could find today. Now, there are many frescoes that survive, as well as other iconic pieces such as the famous gypsum bust of Nefertiti, believed to have been crafted in 1345 BCE. So now that we've had a bit of history, I would like to talk about some of the other earliest examples of natural building materials. Earthen constructions include cob and adobe. Cob involves mixing clay, sand, and straw to create durable walls and floors. Cob structures are found all across the world, in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Sumerians and Egyptians tended to use adobe bricks, which were sun-dried clay and straw mixed together. And it is also found around the world from Mesopotamia to the Americas. It really exists in so, so many forms. Earthen construction wasn't the only natural building material, though. Other civilizations used stone construction, timber construction, thatched roofs made from reeds or straw, bamboo construction with palm leaf roofs and walls, and animal hides have been used to create nomadic tents and easily assembled dwellings. Humans also carved into caves and cliffs using the natural rock formations that already existed as structural elements of their homes and buildings. So you can see that everywhere in the world, local materials were and still are today utilized to create a wide variety of local plaster materials. Another example comes from India, where the Karea arborea tree also called wild guava tree, its stem fibers and the rice husk, which is an agricultural waste product from making rice, is mixed into plaster. And it turns out that these trees, the Korea arborea trees, have antimicrobial and termite resistance properties, which contribute to the survival of these buildings um, when they're going through periods of intense rainfall and climate change. So humans have always used what is around them, and there's actually a great many advantages to using what is directly around you. And this is sometimes called vernacular architecture. This refers to the style of building or architecture to a particular region that is reflective of the needs and constraints of a particular environment. One of the key aspects of said architecture is the use of local materials and traditional techniques. Earthen plaster shows us that humans are adaptable and resourceful and able to meet their basic needs with what is around them. Now we'll move on to a more comprehensive look at the different types of earthen plasters and techniques out there. Clay-based plasters include clay lime and clay sand, and can be used for interior and exterior surfaces. This is where clay is combined with another material for ease of application, durability, flexibility, and moisture regulation, which is sometimes known as breathing. Clay-based plasters are typically composed of earthen clay, which is the primary binder in the plaster, and it provides adhesion, cohesiveness, and a smooth texture. Many different types of clays can work for this purpose, including kaolin clay, bentonite clay, or just the local clay soil. The next ingredient 
is sand, which is added to the mixture to improve workability and durability, and it reduces shrinkage as the plaster dries. Sand helps with keeping the structure of the plaster consistent. And then there's natural fibers like straw, hemp, or dried grasses that are also incorporated to improve the tensile strength, that is the resistance to being pulled apart strength, and to prevent the earthen plaster from cracking. So the plaster is created when clay is mixed with water, which is called a clay slip, and that forms the base of the plaster. Sometimes clay-based plasters are mixed with other additives such as lime, pigment, and stabilizers like chopped straw. So here's how clay-based plaster is typically applied. First, the substrate is cleaned and any defects or cracks must be repaired in the base layer of the wall. You need to ensure that the substrate is also suitable for plaster application. Plaster adheres best to other porous surfaces that can absorb some moisture and provide a mechanical bond. Non-porous surfaces, such as glass, metal, plastic, granite, marble, wallpaper, or loose and flaky rendering are not going to be a good substrate for your plaster. This must be properly prepared before adding an actual coat of plaster on top of it. Then when the substrate is finally primed and ready, a clay slip is created. This is where you go ahead and mix the clay with water until it forms a smooth, pourable consistency. Sometimes people choose to use an embedding fiber as well, such as a straw or hemp, and they should be added to the wet base coat for the added strength. So you're thoroughly going to mix the clay, sand, and the other components to achieve a consistent mixture. And you definitely want to perform several test patches on a small area before deciding exactly on the ratio you will be using. And this is because not only is every type of clay different, every environment is different. So your, um, your mix is going to react slightly differently because of that. So testing is the most important thing that you can do before you go ahead and apply a whole coat of plaster to a wall or floor. And some techniques include wetting the wall before you apply a base coat of plaster because this does create a better bind. And then you apply a base coat of plaster by either troweling it on or hand applying the clay in small compressed pieces onto the substrate or the wall. And thin, even layers are obviously helpful for this, uh, smoothing and shaping the plastering using trowels, sponges, or your hands to help shape and smooth it, really make the plaster apply it evenly. And this allows for quite a bit of choice for the desired texture as well. So you may opt for either a very smooth finish or a very textured finish. And then after it's applied, the plaster must dry um, and the drying process must occur gradually. This is to prevent cracking and to keep the drying process really slow and controlled is essential to making sure that it dries without um, cracking, which is what would happen if it dried too rapidly. So sometimes this involves a misting of the plaster with water and also walling off the area with a curtain to help maintain moisture as it dries. Um, so yeah, it's really important to avoid rapid drying of an earthen plaster to prevent cracking. 
And so clay-based plasters can be left in their natural earthen color, which ranges depending on where you're sourcing it from, but it's usually going to be a reddish to brown color, or you can opt for more color using some natural pigments. And pigment range is still going to be limited, but sometimes something like iron oxide is mixed to create a brighter hue to the wall or floor. And the color should be added during the mixing process to ensure even color distribution and make sure you take notes on how much you're adding so that if you ever need to come back and make that mix again later, you know how much pigment you added for your mix. Straw clay plaster, also known as light straw clay, is a mixture which contains chopped straw or wood chips mixed in with your clay slip. It's typically going to be lightweight, a great insulator, and very workable as a plaster. This natural building material is used as an infill between wooden frames in timber-framed buildings, and this type of mixture has been used for many, many centuries, at least the 12th century in Germany and other parts of Europe, and it even had a resurgence in the 1980s from a group of natural builders and architects um, who liked this type of construction. So you may also be familiar with cob plaster. Um, this is a mixture of clay, sand, and straw that's often used for building both exterior and interior walls and structures, and for finishing interior walls with a smooth or textured surface. And the use of cob is ancient and was used in many parts of Africa, the Americas, and in Iran going back to more than 4,000 years. Cob plaster is typically applied over a cob wall to provide durable, weather-resistant walls with beautiful finishes. And cob is also fireproof, and cob is resilient during seismic activity, which makes it a great choice for earthquake-prone areas as well. Cob-based plaster is composed of clay, the primary binder, sand for workability and to reduce shrinkage, and fiber such as straw to help bind, provide flexibility, and contribute to structure, and water is the last ingredient to create the workable mixture. The application process essentially follows the same as the other kinds of clay-based plasters that we've already discussed. So it includes the misting application during the drying process, and cob-based plaster is often applied in a little bit more of a thicker layer compared to some of the other plaster types, which have a more textured uh, nature to the finish. Now I'd like to talk about adobe, which is also made from clay, sand, and sometimes stabilizers like straw or animal dung. Adobe is used on interior and exterior surfaces, typically of buildings made from adobe bricks. Adobe plasters are mostly used to finish and protect the adobe walls, and this provides a protective and aesthetically pleasing finish to an adobe wall. Adobe differs from the other types of clay-based plasters um, in that it may be slightly more susceptible to water damage than a clay-based plaster. And cob tends to have a higher percentage of clay than adobe does. Adobe is also much smoother of a finish than cob because it often lacks that fiber element, which creates a lot of texture. So adobe-based plaster can be a variety of thicknesses as well. 
And if you choose to work with Adobe, definitely consult a thorough guide or apprentice to have a better understanding of traditional Adobe construction principles. Lime plaster is another type of earthen material you may choose to work with for finishing interior and exterior surfaces. Lime plaster differs significantly from working with a clay-based plaster, so let's go through some of that information together. Lime plaster is primarily made from lime, which is a mineral compound. There are different types of lime, such as hydrated lime and hydraulic lime, so let's talk about that for a moment. Hydrated lime is natural. It's lime putty, and it's an often used material in traditional lime plasters because it has excellent qualities of moisture breathability and flexibility with the stone construction. And it's also naturally antifungal, preventing mold from developing on the walls. Hydrated lime is mixed with water, a process called slaking, and creates a paste that hardens over time through a process of carbonation. The chemical reaction that occurs during the slaking process is where CaO, calcium oxide, or sometimes it's referred to as quicklime, is mixed with H2O, which is water, and the result is CaOH2, or hydrated lime. The slaking process is actually an exothermic process, meaning it creates heat during the process and undergoes a significant volume expansion, turning it into a user-friendly material. And this is why it's very fun sometimes to work with lime because it looks like a science experiment when you begin mixing the water, it looks like a volcanic experiment um, because of this slaking process, which creates heat and also volume expansion. Then you have hydraulic lime. This is considered a synthetic and it contains impurities that allow the lime to set and harden even in the presence of water. So this makes it a good choice for certain conditions where exposure to moisture is a concern in applications like mortar, plaster, and stucco. Now there are different types of hydraulic lime with different specific impurities to them. So there's things like natural hydraulic lime, NHL, or formulated hydraulic lime, FHL, which are used for different purposes in construction and restoration. And as we've already discussed, clay plasters are usually composed of clay, sand, and some type of fiber. Lime plaster generally requires more careful mixing and application because of the chemical reaction that takes place. Lime paste also shouldn't be overworked and also improves if it sits and has time to mature before. Uh, lime plaster, as we just discussed, sets from reacting with carbon dioxide in the air, and that's actually how it hardens. And the curing process called carbonation means that that wall will continue to harden and gain more strength as it absorbs carbon dioxide in the air. It may be several weeks or months before it fully cures, um, but similar to a clay plaster, it should be done very slowly and with controlled moisture to prevent the cracking. But in contrast, clay-based plasters may be more forgiving in terms of their mixture and application and can even be adjusted in the moment if need be. The clay mixture can be worked extensively, 
without negatively impacting its properties. And because clay dries through natural evaporation of water, not carbonation, they generally dry more quickly than lime. And once they are dry, they're gonna remain very stable. So clay plaster is susceptible to rehydrating if they come into contact with water, which is why clay-based plasters often require a top coat of some kind of oil or wax that's applied to the top coat of the clay plaster to protect against any excess moisture. In terms of finish and color, to consider lime plaster, it will appear smoother and more polished compared to a clay, um, but they can be worked to create a variety of finishes from smooth to sandy to textured and can be quite decorative. Clay plasters will keep on more of a rustic and earthy appearance. They're gonna range from smooth to highly textured and that just depends on the desired finish. Both plasters will take to pigment as well, but lime is going to have a tendency to go light gray or white, and that's because of the natural properties of lime. So the final dry color is always gonna be several shades lighter than your application color. So as you can see, each type of clay-based plaster and each type of lime-based plaster has unique benefits and challenges for a home or building, but both provide many, many benefits to human health and the thermodynamic properties of the building. One of the most famous lime-based plaster techniques is a traditional Moroccan plaster called Tadillact, where the final coat is burnished with polished stones and finished with an olive oil soap solution to create a waterproof and smooth surface. Tadillact is particularly useful in wet areas such as bathrooms and kitchens and can be applied on a suitable substrate such as a lime or cementitious base. Tadillac technique uses a specific type of lime, which is called a lime of Marrakech, which is rich in its hydraulic properties and contains both quicklime and hydraulic lime. Fine limestone powder is often used as the aggregate instead of sand. The type of aggregate used will affect the final appearance and the texture of the Tadillact. Water is used to create a paste with the lime and aggregate, and this forms the base of the plaster. Burnishing the top layer with stone enhances the waterproofing and makes it shinier. The main differential between regular lime plaster and a Tadillact technique with plaster is that the application of the natural olive oil soap is required for Tadillact. The soap actually reacts with lime and creates a unique polished finish and the waterproofing aspect of the material. The soap is able to actually penetrate the plaster itself and react with the calcium compounds that are found in the lime. And this forms a soap-lime complex, which hardens and becomes very water resistant. It essentially, it fills in the tiny pores in the plaster and makes it less porous, which provides the waterproofing. What makes Tadillact unique is all about the technique of it. The technique is very important to getting a good outcome with this particular plaster. First, the base coat is applied in two or three layers with a trowel and is left to partially dry between applications. 
Once the plaster has set, the surface is then burnished using a smooth stone or tadelact specific tool. And the burnishing motion compresses that plaster and that's what creates this really polished look. And after the burnishing is finished, the surface is then treated with that diluted solution of natural olive oil soap and then is further polished again with the same burnishing tools. And that helps distribute the soap really evenly and achieve that final polished waterproof appearance. And Tadillact also takes reasonably well to natural pigment. And remember that burnishing and polishing will deepen the color and enhance the overall appearance of the Tadillac plaster. And you'll need to annually reapply the olive oil soap to maintain its properties. Next, I'll briefly discuss wattle and daub, which is an ancient technique involving the weaving of a lattice of sticks, which is referred to as a wattle, and coating them with a mixture of clay, sand, and straw, which is called daub. This technique was mostly used for building walls and partitions, um, but various forms of it can be found all over the world throughout history um, in places like Africa, the Americas, Europe, and India, so essentially everywhere. And the wattle specifically refers to this framework of vertical and horizontal like wooden strips or branches that are thin and flexible enough to be used for this purpose. So they'd use types of wood like hazel, bamboo, thin tree branches, or willow um, because it's so flexible. And its purpose is to provide the structure, basically this weaving technique. And the daub, on the other hand, is the mixture that's used to fill in the gaps and create this solid surface rendering. And daub has many similar characteristics to the other clay-based plasters that we've talked about. It's essentially the same, a mix of clay, sand, and fiber, and sometimes other additives when they were available, such as animal dung or lime. And the wattle is prepared through weaving a lattice framework to form this strong and stable structure and is often attached to a supporting wood frame. And then the daub is taken and the mixture is pressed and compacted. And it's done so to ensure really even coverage and adhesion to this lattice work of the wattle. And it's most often a few inches thick. It's gonna be a rather thick wall. Um, because of this process. And the daub will dry to the wattle and will create a hardened, solid, insulated, and very durable wall. And also another, you know, advantage to this technique, I think, was that it was relatively easy to repair the wall without affecting the entire structure. So that inner um, wattle really provided a strong structure so that if they needed to make little edits to the daub, they didn't lose the whole wall in the process. Now onto rammed earth plaster, which is yet another plaster technique made from earthen materials. Rammed earth walls are often finished with a plaster that's made from the same mix as the walls, mainly clay, sand, and some stabilizer. But essentially constructing a rammed earth wall involves a series of steps that require very careful planning, proper materials and skilled labor in order to do this compaction process where we're actually taking compact layers of damp soil with a formwork 
to create a solid and durable wall. Uh, formwork is just a mold that's constructed on both sides of the wall to define the dimensions and shape of that wall. The formwork is typically made from a very hard material like wood or metal, and it needs to be sturdy enough to withstand a compacting process that's going to go on in between the two pieces. And then a suitable soil must be selected that has a balanced mixture of sand, silt, and clay. And the material is then mixed with water, and then it reaches you know, an optimal moisture content. It should be damp, but not overly wet. And this is going to ensure a proper compaction once it's mixed together. Sometimes additional stabilizers, such as lime or cement, are added. And then the moistened mixture is layered within the formwork and compacted using a mechanical rammer or a pneumatic tamper to compact each layer evenly within the formwork, eliminating voids, any air pockets, and ensuring that the soil is really packed in densely enough. Each layer is a few inches thick, and the wall is built up by slowly adding and compacting, adding and compacting multiple layers. And sometimes further reinforcement may be added in the wall, such as rebar or bamboo, and the windows and doors for that building should always be framed out first because you're not going to actually ram all this earth in and then you know cut out a wall instead all of that is really contained and framed out within the formwork first and instead of being added in later and and then the rammed earth construction process can go forward so the rammed earth walls then cure very slowly and evenly the same way as other plasters uh, and that prevents cracking and helps the mixture to reach its optimal strength. But just like other earthen walls, it really requires maintenance of the moisture levels during the curing process. So misting the wall sometimes was um, commonplace. And finally, once the wall is cured, that formwork or the mold is pulled apart and it reveals the finished rammed earth wall. And if you've never seen a rammed earth wall or you don't know what I'm talking about, you actually should Google it, look it up. It is beautiful. If you ac actually take a look at the pictures of it, the, these beautiful layers are created. Um, and, and even before you put plaster on top of the wall, even just the raw uh, rammed earth wall has its own beautiful architectural qualities. Another technique that's become of interest in recent years is the use of hemp and hempcrete plaster. Hempcrete is just a mixture of hemp fibers into a lime plaster binder. And hempcrete provides good insulation, it's very lightweight, it's also fire resistant, and another example of a breathable wall surface. Hempcrete is composed of hemp herd, which is just the inner woody core of the hemp plant which is processed and combined with the other materials in the mixture. The other main material is that lime binder, which is just hydrated lime mixed together to hold all these materials together and the water to create the workable mixture. So that's really all there is to it. Hempcrete is not compacted like cob or rammed earth is. Um, instead, it's more loosely placed um, when it's applied. And that actually allows for these little air gaps that contribute to part of its insulating properties. And similar to other lime-based plasters, it cures through that process of carbonation over time 
And so it will create a solid, lightweight, and insulating material for your wall. So now that we know a bit about the different earthen plasters and plaster techniques and a bit about their history, it would be time to start thinking about understanding the composition of your wall and how to select the appropriate earthen plaster or material for that wall. So there are some things to consider. Um, different kinds of walls have varying characteristics, porosity, and structural behavior. And it's important to consider this when finding a compatible material, which can ensure the proper adhesion to the substrate and also prevent issues such as delamination or cracking. In addition, different materials expand and contract at different rates due to changes in temperature and humidity. So a mix match between the flexibility of the substrate and the flexibility of the plaster can lead to cracking over time. But breathable materials, these are the ones that tend to be more forgiving and accommodating in slight shifts, which is, again, another preference for earthen materials. Moisture management is also another crucial component to this. So understanding the wall's composition helps you to anticipate how moisture is going to interact with that wall. Stone walls are a really good example. Stone can absorb moisture from the environment and then releases it very slowly. And this is why applying a breathable plaster to a stone wall allows for moisture to evaporate naturally and will prevent moisture buildup that leads to deterioration, mold growth, or other issues. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you've ever seen a wall where paint is sort of bubbling and peeling at the bottom of the wall, like maybe the first couple feet from the bottom, it's likely that there's a non-breathable paint, such as acrylic base paint, which would be a plastic, that's been painted over a breathable surface. So the rendering underneath is a breathable surface, but the paint is a non-breathable surface. So now you've put that on top. So when the moisture gets trapped between the wall layer and the paint layer, the paint bubbles up, it cracks, and it peels off of the wall. And areas with heavy damp sometimes combat this with tiling the walls and even the bottom half of the wall. So if you ever walk into a building and you see that not only is the floor tiled, but the first half of the wall is tiled, that's probably because the building has damp in it. And instead of dealing with constantly repainting, the solution was to put the tiles there. Because breathable materials allow moisture to migrate in and out of the wall, it prevents this problem of trapped moisture. And in addition to the good properties of humidity, breathable plasters also tend to provide positive thermal characteristics, which help to regulate temperature and make the space more comfortable and energy efficient. And just to make it really clear, the idea of breathable really just refers to the ability of a plaster material to allow for moisture vapor to pass through it. The breathable plasters are the ones that we've talked about today, lime, clay, cob, earth plasters, and hempcrete. On the other hand, non-breathable plaster or non-breathable materials refer to materials like Portland cement, acrylic stucco, and a variety of waterproof coatings and waterproof paints that create non-breathable surfaces. 
So breathable plasters are obviously preferred, especially if your goal is to renovate an old home or to create natural construction, even if it's a new construction, as these materials will promote healthy moisture management, they're going to prevent mold, and they'll prevent long-term structural damages that are associated with trapped moisture, which honestly is a lot of the problems with buildings today. So I hope that this podcast was able to bring you the basics of working with earthen plasters and natural construction materials. I've learned it's really important to understand that the future of building for climate resilience must include retrofitting existing buildings into more earth-friendly and more human health-friendly forms. Many of the materials that have been marketed to us in the last century have actually been a great mistake. You know, I can think of many examples, everything from cement to plastic rope, to plastic-based paints, you know, many of these materials claim to make buildings stronger and better and more resilient, but it turns out they're actually ignorant to many of the environmental, thermodynamic, structural, and human health considerations that it's clear indigenous people had obviously worked this out long ago. So it's really interesting to see the positive impact that using earthen materials today can have on you, your health, and even your spirit. And I think it's great to consider how you might utilize these materials to create homes that are more comfortable and that reduce the possibility of mold exposure. Um, One thing I can say for certain is that mold is a serious issue and that it plagues many of our living spaces because of the problems with more of the contemporary materials that I just discussed. So the cumulative toll of living with harmful building materials and harmful mold really can't be understated. And I'm sure its impact has a widespread effect on us and is probably causing a lot of chronic disease and and death that is just completely unreported and really not discussed. So to me, it really behooves us to start to learn how to work with these earthen plasters and generally how to create homes that are safe and comfortable as we deal with more variables in our climate and environment. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, subscribe, and comment to let me know what you think of the show. And this episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We're bringing you info on backyard food production and sustainable living. If you enjoyed this content, you can support us by going to www.patreon.com polycultured. This concludes episode 59 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.